two-week-old child is abducted. A girl goes missing from a sleepover with her friend. A man disappears a week before he is set to be married. A U.S. Marine goes missing only 18 months after getting married. A boy and his brother go missing, but only one of them is found. A mother is found murdered, but her child is missing. A couple on their very first date is never seen again. Nothing is ever as simple as it seems. Welcome back to Never To Be Seen Again. Hello, and welcome back to your favorite podcast. I am Laura, your host. Welcome to episode 23. So last week in episode 22, we covered Michigan. This week, we're hit a a little southwest of there, and we'll talk about Virginia. Starting with this episode, I want to do something a little different and give you some stats on on the state we are talking about before we get into the cases. I'm working on revamping the format of the episodes so that you have a smoother and more interesting listening experience. As I mentioned before, this is really a work in progress for me, and I do appreciate you sticking with me. So, Virginia's population as of 2019 is reported by U.S. Census data to be 8.536 million. 50.8% of that number is reported uh, female, which means that 49.2% is male. On NamUs, there are 244 reported missing people in Virginia. Now, you have to take that number with a grain of salt because while NamUs is the most inclusive list, it is not always 100% accurate and up-to-date. But of that 244, though, 126 are male and 118 are female. Today, we are going to talk about eight of those persons listed on NamUs. I have six single disappearances and one double disappearance. Um, I'm going to save that double disappearance for the last case today. All of these cases are pretty interesting, and surprisingly, I was able to find a pretty good amount of information on, on each of these cases as well. Once again, I'll mention beforehand that all of these cases are on the Charlie Project. So let's jump on in. Our first case this week is case number 133 DMVA in the Doe Network and case number MP8851 in NamUs. This is a juvenile disappearance, so the NCMEC number is 601759. This is the the disappearance of David Ezel Blockett. David is an African-American male with black hair and brown eyes. He was born on November 26th of 1980 and was only two weeks old when he disappeared. It's been almost 40 years since his disappearance, and he would be 39 now. He weighed only 7 pounds and was 20 inches long. David has a tiny mole on his right ear and birthmarks under his arm, on his back, and on his buttocks. Let's go back to December 11th of 1980. Christmas is just a couple of weeks away and newborn David is at home with his mother Vanessa Blockett and his two-year-old big brother Frederick. They live together in a house on 13th Street in Newport News, Virginia. 
There's a knock on the door. When Vanessa opens the door, she sees an African-American woman who looked to be between the ages of 32 and 35 years old. She has a medium complexion and large hips. She was between 145 and 155 pounds. Vanessa greets the woman, and the woman identifies herself as Marie Kelly. Uh, she said she worked for the, the State Department of Social Services. She told Vanessa that DSS was sponsoring a function for children at Riverside Regional Medical Center. Marie Kelly convinced Vanessa to allow David and his brother Frederick to go with her to the party. Later that afternoon, Frederick was found wandering alone at a shopping center near Old Mallory Road in Hampton, Virginia. He had a piece of paper in his pocket with his name and address on it. The police returned Frederick to Vanessa, but there was no indication of David's whereabouts and he has not been seen since, at least not being identified as David Blockett. Something else odd happened that day, though. Vanessa received a call while she was at home. The female caller asked Vanessa what sort of formula the baby was taking. Now, of course, it is believed that the caller is the abductor, Marie Kelly. The female on the phone hung up before the police were able to get a trace on the call. Then, several days later, authorities found a diaper bag and a leather folder near a parkway in Yorktown, Virginia. They believe the items belong to the abductor. So let's talk about Marie Kelly, the woman with two first names. Investigators, of course, contact DSS. Well, wouldn't you know, DSS didn't employ any social workers with the name Marie Kelly or, any, or even anyone that matched the woman's description. There was also no Christmas party for children at the Riverside Regional Medical Center, as the woman claimed. Authorities speculate that whoever took David may have gotten his name and address from the local paper. You see, the local paper, like so many others, posted about recent births. David's birth was listed in said newspaper three days before he was taken. Also, around the same time of David's kidnapping, a person posing as a social worker approached another family with a newborn. The mother of that baby wasn't having it and told the person to go away. So in a coincidence that is probably unrelated, two of David's nephews were abducted in 2011. Sometime after David's kidnapping, Vanessa ended up having another son named Dante. These two boys were the sons of Dante. They were only five and six when they were abducted. The boy's mother, uh, Yovanda, had taken the two boys with her to work when a stranger named Summer Pennell asked for a ride to North Carolina. Yovanda agreed and told the stranger, uh, Summer Pennell, to, uh, and she agreed to allow Summer to take her car as long as she took the children with her to the park and watched them until she finished her shift. Well, wouldn't you know it, Panel took the two boys and disappeared. Hours later, Panel and the two boys were found unharmed in Halifax, North Carolina. Panel was arrested and charged with abduction. Panel has a long history of mental illness 
and in January of 2012, she was found not, guilt, not guilty of kidnapping by reason of insanity. Yovanda was also eventually charged in the case for child neglect because she allegedly left the boys unattended in the vehicle for hours and then let a complete stranger take them. I could not find what happened in regards to those ch charges, though. Okay, but back to the original story. Uh, David's mother, Vanessa, sadly died in 1997 from an aneurysm at the age of 35. Frederick, David's older brother, now lives in North Carolina. As an adult, Frederick can vaguely remember the abduction. Keep in mind, he was only two at the time. He remembers that there was a man driving the car and neither the man or Marie Kelly would look at him or his brother. He also remembers his abductors dropping him off in Hampton. Now, let's talk about something potentially positive. Remember that diaper bag? Well, investigators still have that in evidence. The diaper bag had David's booties, his blanket, a sweater, and a pair of jeans in it. There was also a comb with some hair stuck to it. Investigators hoped to be able to test the items for DNA. So, David has never been located. The female that took him has yet to be identified, but there is a sketch of the woman that was produced from Vanessa's memory of her, I believe. Uh, hopefully soon, we'll hear some updates in this case. But if you can expedite the process with any information you may know about David Izell Blockett, uh, please contact the Newport News Police Department. Our next case is a particularly sad one, and it's also going to be a long one. This is case number 2401DFVA on the Doe Network, MP1189 in NamUs, and the NCMEC number for this one is 1156378. This is the disappearance of Catherine Sybil Worski. So Katie, as she is known, is a Caucasian female with blonde hair and hazel eyes. I don't have her date of birth, but she would be 50 now. She was 12 at the time of her disappearance. Katie was 4 foot 10 and 90 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen wearing a pink t-shirt. Katie is blood type B, which plays into this case. Katie is also type 1 diabetic and insulin dependent. So before we get into the details of the case, uh, I got most of this information from a very good article. It's from a publication called The Hook. The story is called Remembering Katie Warski After 25 Years, written by Courtney Stewart. It was the cover story of the publication's July, 20, uh, July 12, 2007 um, issue. Now, they stopped producing this publication in 2003, but you can find the archives online. This story was in print issue number 0628. Katie was the middle of three children of Robin and Alan Warski. Katie's Older sister, Jamie, was 15 at the time of Katie's disappearance, and her younger brother, John, was only five. The family lived in an apartment in the Four Seasons subdivision in Charlottesville, Virginia. Dad, Alan, was a salesman, and Katie was a daddy's girl. She often begged him to go uh, with 
she often begged to go with him to Chesapeake Bay for fishing expeditions. Katie was a tomboy. In the summer of 1982, Sunday, July 11th to be exact, uh, Katie asked her parents to spend the night at her friend's house. Now, initially, Robin and Alan say no, but years later, they can't immediately recall why. But 12-year-old Katie was persistent, and so they eventually gave in. It's late in the afternoon when Alan drops Katie off at 2745 McElroy Drive. The house was a modest brick ranch-style house at the end of uh, a, wood, a wooded cul-de-sac. It was the house of Worski's former neighbor, Carrie Gates. Carrie was a single mother of two, uh, of two children, 13-year-old Tammy Thomas and 8-year-old Eddie Thomas. Carrie and her children had moved from the, the county to the city, but Tammy and Katie had remained friends, and they still often slept over at each other's houses. So this sleepover was not particularly abnormal to Tammy and Katie's parents. It's 5.30 the next morning, July 12th, and the phone at the Worski home rings. A barely awake Robin answers the phone. On the other end of the phone is Carrie Gates, and what she says woke Robin up completely. Carrie asks, is Katie there? Robin says, what do you mean is Katie here? She's at your house. But she wasn't. The Worskis race across town to Carrie's house. When they arrived, they frantically searched the whole house looking for Katie. They couldn't find her. Carrie hadn't contacted the police yet, but at this point, the Worskis insisted upon it. The police arrived, and by 7 a.m., the property was secured as a crime scene, and the investigation begins. Before police even arrived, though, another person showed up at the house to help search for Katie. It was 23-year-old Glenn Haslam Barker. Robin didn't recognize this man, but Alan did. He was familiar with him as being a convenience store clerk at a gas station that Alan would often stop at to purchase cigarettes and coffee. Alan noticed something um, almost immediately. He makes note that when Glenn Barker sees him, his eyes got as big as silver dollars. When Alan notices this, he automatically had a gut feeling that something was wrong. Why is Glenn Barker there, though? Well, Glenn and Carrie had actually dated, but at this point, the romantic relationship was over, and Carrie and Glenn were friends. Do you get a bad feeling about Glenn? Well, if you do, you wouldn't be the only one. Police felt the same way. What I'm going to tell you next is only going to make it worse. What Glenn tells the police throws him right into the line of suspicion. He doesn't deny that he was the last person to see Katie the night before when she, Tammy, and Eddie had gone to bed. It gets worse. He admits he had brought a six-pack of beer over to Carrie's house and had given Katie and Tammy at least one each. He said he left the house around 12.30 a.m. after he tucked Eddie into bed and checked on Katie and Tammy, who, he said, were sleeping peacefully on the ground floor of the house. Police, of course, were not buying this story. Now, 
I know you have some questions, but stick with me because I'll give you the answer to most of those at some point. Searches for Katie start almost immediately, and police are doing their very best to investigate any possible leads. The community rallied around the family and help in the search for Katie. The organized search groups, uh, they organized search groups while police used dogs to search the wooded areas near the home and helicopters flew overhead. As days turned into weeks, the question of how long Katie could survive without her insulin turned in, turn the searches to a more grim expectation. Katie had left her insulin behind when she disappeared. It was found by police in Carrie's house next to Katie's shoes and her other belongings. It got to the point where searchers were looking in areas where they would see vultures circling. They also used dive teams and canoers to search uh, the Ravana River. The police chief at the time even wanted to search the landfill, but there was just not enough leads pointing in that direction to justify it. As police grew more desperate, they even agreed to consult a psychic. The psychic predicted Katie's body was near a shed on a hillside somewhere in Albemarie County. That lead also obviously didn't pan out. On July 15th, the police chief, the police chief makes the announcement that the police were calling off the full-scale search. The smaller search operation would continue as police had to follow up on multiple tips. Now, police didn't find Katie, but they did find some pretty strong clues. In the hours after Katie's disappearance, um, or in the hours after it was reported, police ended up searching Glenn Barker's apartment with his permission. What police found during this search will make you look at Barker even harder. What they find is wet, blood-stained men's clothing and towels between the mattress and box spring of Glenn's bed, as well as in a cooler. Now, Glenn, who was present for this search, appeared completely shocked when these items were found. Glenn claimed he had no idea how those items got there. So, I know this sounds positive, but think about the time period. We're talking about 1982, a time before DNA testing was really a thing. They did do blood type comparison, though. Now, they were able to determine that the stains on the wet clothes matched Glenn Barker's type A, but they were, uh, there were also type B blood stains on the clothing. The thing was, though, even though Katie had diabetes, her blood had never been typed. Because of that, they could not connect Katie to the clothing, at least not yet. So investigators were, weren't quite done yet. They feared they missed something the first time they went through Glenn's apartment. So investigators end up getting a search warrant for his apartment the following week. This time, Glenn had no notice that the police were coming. They had almost concluded the search when their heads hang, with their heads hanging because they hadn't found anything new. Then, one of the investigators decided to take a look in Glenn's dresser. Inside a rolled-up pair of socks, the investigator found a balled-up pair of girls' panties. On the back of these panties was a tiny blood stain. 
the location of that blood stain was consistent with the location where Katie would inject herself with insulin. The problem still was that there was, they weren't doing DNA testing and they didn't know Katie's blood type. Now, while Glenn seems guilty, the then Commonwealth attorney didn't want to rush charges. You have to realize at this point, most of the evidence could be considered circumstantial. I think the bigger issue was that they still hadn't found Katie's body. Now, while we know it's possible to get a no-body murder conviction, it's harder, and I think that the DA was afraid that if he charged Glenn with Katie's murder and he wasn't convicted, that he couldn't be tried again. You know, double jeopardy. On January, oh, by January of 1983, investigators have spent months trying to find a way to match Katie's blood type to the type on the items in Glenn's apartment. They find a solution thanks to Katie's unrelenting parents. Robin and Alan realized that there were several stains on Katie's mattress. Katie had recently begun menstruating and the only other person to have slept in that bed was Katie's menopausal grandmother. Super excited about this, the police test the stains on the mattress and what they discover is that five of those stains were blood. Most importantly, the blood type was type B. Over six months after Katie's disappearance, on January 29th of 1983, Glenn Barker is arrested and charged with Katie's presumed murder. The trial began nearly six months later. The courtroom was packed with spectators, but the Worskis were prohibited from watching the trial because they were being called as witnesses. The jury of eight women and four men listened to days of testimony from Katie's family, Carrie Gates, Tammy Thomas, and a slew of officers and forensic experts. Some facts emerged during witness testimony. As Glenn Barker admitted, he had given Katie and Tammy at least one beer. Tammy testified that they had more than one beer. Tammy said that both she and Katie had gotten sick after drinking the beers. Tammy said when she went to bed, she'd last seen Glenn reading Eddie a bedtime story. She said she awoke from a bad dream at about 5.30 a.m. and realized that Katie's bed was empty. Her friend was gone. Prosecution theorized at trial that after the two girls became intoxicated, Glenn carried Katie to the ground floor rec room and attempted to molest her. You see, they had discovered drops of type B blood on the rug and around the coffee table in that room. Glenn, of course, maintained his innocence in the case. He said he had nothing to do with Katie's disappearance and that he left the house sometime after midnight with all three children safe. But there's more evidence. Forensic experts testified that a hair found in Glenn's car was consistent with Katie's hair. Also, scent dogs identified Katie's scent inside Glenn's car. Want even more damning evidence? Well, Charlottesville Police Detective Chip Harding testified that an angry Glenn had called the police department eight days after Katie's disappearance to personally threaten him and act uncertain about Katie. Detective Harding testified that Glenn said, quote, why should I tell you? I'll wait for the facts and then I'll remember them. 
Detective Harding also testified that when Glenn was presented with the mounting evidence against him and asked if he had harmed Katie, he responded, quote, I probably did, but I don't remember. Now, those personal threats Glenn had made to, the, to Detective Harding were because Detective Harding had warned an 18-year-old girl that Glenn was dating that Glenn was dangerous. So after more than a week of testimony and jury deliberation, on July 28th of 1983, the jury found Glenn Barker guilty of second-degree murder. The jury recommended an 18-year sentence, two years short of the 20-year maximum. They declined to convict Glenn of first-degree murder because, at the time, the jury was not convinced that the murder was premeditated. What they didn't realize about the sentencing was that Glenn could be eligible for parole after serving only half of his sentence, nine years. In 1995, though, the mandatory parole rule was changed. Not only did this change the mandatory parole, but it increased the sentence for violent offenders and established truth in sentencing, which is a law that requires juries to be told exactly how much time someone they, con they convict will serve. A thing called bifurcated jury trials also eliminated, was also eliminated. In the past, this prevented juries from learning about the defendant's prior record when they were, deter when they were determining the sentencing. Because of this rule, the jury in Katie's murder trial never heard about Glenn's prior record, which may have resulted in a different sentence. What they did know, what they didn't know, was that in 1981, Glenn was charged in Harnett County, North Carolina, for kidnapping an 18-year-old female, tying her to a bed, and holding her at knife point. While the victim was restrained, Glenn went outside to move her car, and the victim took this as an opportunity to escape su successfully. In that case, in I'm sorry, in that case, Glenn pled guilty to assault. So because all of these new rules did not apply to to Katie's case or, or Glenn's trial, uh, Glenn Park Barker was paroled from prison in 1992. But he was rearrested in 1993 and charged with possession of a firearm after a pellet gun was found in his car. Uh, he served another six months on that charge before being released again. So after his release, Glenn Barker eventually moved to South River, New Jersey. He was spoken to about 25 years after Katie's disappearance. Even after all that time passed, he was still infuriated. Uh, ew, I'm sorry. He was still as infuriating as ever. He still maintained his innocence. This is what he said or this is what he had to say directly from the Hook article. He said he and Carrie Gates had known each other for several years. We started out having a romantic relationship, but that didn't work out, so we remained friends, quote-unquote. The night of Katie's disappearance, Barker said he had come over to visit uh, with Carrie Gates, but when she told him that she was too tired to drink the beer he had brought, and that she was going to bed, he planned to leave. Instead, he said, he was beckoned into the ground floor rec room by the kids. Tammy and Eddie, quote unquote, were crazy about me, he said. Quote, we hung out all the time. 
and he'd taken them to um, Chuck E. Cheese or places like that. Barker says it was the girls who asked to share the beer. <sighs> I know it was wrong, but I was young too, and I wasn't going to be the bad guy, he says. He also believed that Tammy had alcohol before. I didn't see the big deal, he says. He says that he never saw Katie become ill from the alcohol, but agrees with the trial testimony that Tammy did throw up. I was holding her hair when she was throwing up in the toilet, he said. <clears throat> he read Eddie a bedtime story, and then when the child fell asleep, quote, I put my beer bottle back in the bag. Five minutes after Eddie fell asleep, I was gone, end quote. Barker, who says he is diabetic and has suffered two strokes and three heart attacks, now says he even remembered the drive from McElroy Drive to Georgetown Road. He took the long route around uh, the circle, which is this area around the University of JPA and Emmett Street. Um, he took that route so he could gaze at co-eds. The idea that he would be sexually interested in a child, he says, doesn't make sense. <laughs> I was dating two other girls when this happened, he says. Everyone said I was looking to have sex. There were two other places I could have went. Why would I want a child, especially if I had to use force? I could go get it for free with no problem. I don't understand why people are, why people are not thinking. Barker says uh, the investigation and the trial were riddled with errors and inconsistencies, starting with the search of his apartment. He maintains he doesn't know how the wet, blood-stained clothes got, un clothes got under his mattress and points out that he allowed police to come in for the first search, something he said he wouldn't have done if he had something to hide. He also wondered why they didn't find the panties on the first search and why they got a warrant when he'd already agreed to let them come in. He suspects police planted the evidence, a charge, of course, the police deny. He questioned the validity of the blood on Katie's mattress and says blood stains were used up by prosecution's tests. So the defense was forced to rely on those results rather than getting independent tests. He also says the use of dogs to match Katie's scent to his car and establish his path out of the house with her was flawed and that the dogs seemed to identify several different locations and vehicles. Though Barker strongly denies any wrongdoing in the Warski case, he does take responsibility for the 1981 assault in North Carolina, which he believes had been the source of all his problems. I tied her hands behind her back, he admits. Uh, it was at knife point, but I never did anything or said anything. It was wrong what I did there, he says. I'm not trying to simplify it. It was very traumatic for her. He says drugs and alcohol had affected his behavior, and his wife at the time, Lynn, with whom he had a son, had just left him. All I wanted, he explained, was the company. Now, Obviously, Katie is still missing, or I wouldn't be telling you about her case. So twice while, while Glenn was in prison, Robin, Katie's mother, went to visit him. Um, I'm sorry. <clears throat> she begged Glenn to tell her where Katie's body was. 
he still denied any involvement and told her that basically if he knew he would tell her because he already served the time so what would be the harm these visits really did a number on robin actually glenn was was so convincing that she even began to doubt he had done something to katie glenn also wrote her letters after those visits wanting her to return to visit him again he also wanted robin to befriend his mother eventually robin realized that it was doing her no emotional or mental favors so now as you can imagine a tragedy like this really puts a strain on a multitude of relationships in particular the strain between a missing child's mother and father in robin and alan's case the strain proved to be too much and they ended up divorcing about a year after Glenn Barker was convicted of their daughter's murder. Both Alan and Robin realized that they had been through so much that they didn't want to argue or fight with each other over every over and after everything that had happened. By ending the marriage, they essentially saved the relationship and they have been able to remain really good friends. The divorce also allowed them to deal with their grief separately, but together, and in their own personal ways. Alan wanted to move away from the area and the memories that haunted him, while Robin wanted to stay in case Katie would ever return. More than just the strain between the husband and wife, the strain on their other children was real. Jamie, who was 15 when her sister disappeared, remembers most everything about those early days in the investigation. Then, when Jamie tried to get away from the pain that was being caused by her sister's disappearance, her parents only held her closer. Her father was much more strict. He wouldn't be, she wouldn't be allowed to go to certain places or do certain things, and her curfew was always way earlier than her friend's. Her father was always with her, and he became increasingly protective of her. The community also turned against them in a sense as well. Even though Katie didn't disappear from the Worski house, a lot of parents did not want their children sleeping over with Jamie or Eddie at the Worski home. As you could imagine, this coupled with just being a teenager caused Jamie to rebel. But now that Jamie is an adult, she understands her father's behavior better and understands his actions. They have long since mended their relationship. Alan has moved out of Virginia, but Jamie still talks to him quite frequ quite frequently. Of course, Katie's disappearance would have a long-lasting effect on the community as well. Children in Katie's class joined in the search efforts for her and parents would become more cautious of where they would allow their children to go and what they would allow them to do. And while this is a good thing, it came at the cost of a little girl's life. Katie is still missing, though, and her family still seeks the closure of being able to properly lay her to rest. If you have any information about Katie Sybil Worski's whereabouts, you can contact the Charlottesville Police Department. One last thing about Glenn Barker. Because of this case and after it, Glenn Barker's name has come up in connection with other homicides and missing persons. There are theories that he was a serial killer. He was never charged in any other case besides Katie's, though. Barker believed 
uh, that he had been framed by the police in Katie's disappearance. He alleged that they planted the blood blood stained clothes that was found in the apartment. But if you noticed, I was using the past tense because Glenn Barker died of natural causes at the age of 55 in North Carolina. He never revealed Katie's location or even admitted to causing her disappearance. The only thing he ever said he did wrong that night was give the girls those beers. Anything else he may have known about Katie's case or any other case was buried with him. So that was a nice long case. Um, this next one will not be so long, although, although I kind of wish it was. Uh, this is case number 3365 DMVA in the Doe Network and case number MP26765 in NamUs. This is the disappearance of Richard William Miller Jr. William is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. I do not have an exact date of birth for him, but he was born sometime around or sometime in 1963. He was 20 at the time of his disappearance, although the Charlie Project says he was 18. It's been 36 years since his disappearance, so he would be 56 or 57 if he was 20 then. He was 5 foot 7 and 120 pounds. He was last seen wearing a blue jacket, a red shirt, dark blue work pants, and brown dress boots. So Richard's nicknames are Pete and Petey. I have no idea why those are his nicknames, though. So I believe it was the morning of November 17th of 1983. And I say I believe it was the morning because Richard was on his way to work. Richard Jr. and his dad were headed in the same direction, and they were actually traveling the same route, at least for a while. Richard Sr. is ahead of Richard Jr., and they travel, and they're traveling um, en route 254 on their way to Staunton, Virginia. At some point, Richard Sr. checks behind him, and Richard Jr. is no longer there, so he turns back to find him. When he turned around, he saw his son's truck parked on the side of the road behind another truck that had a cap on the uh, bed. The second truck's tailgate was dropped. Uh, oh, propped up with a stick. I'm sorry. Richard Sr. saw this and made the assumption, like most of us would, that his son had stopped to assist a stranded motorist. Richard Sr. didn't stop, but instead continued on his way to work. This would be a decision Richard Sr. would regret for years to come. So it turned out that the truck that Richard Jr. had pulled up behind belonged to Charles uh, Charles Lindbergh Alman. Charles Alman wasn't just some random strange, stranded motorist. Charles Alman was Richard Jr.'s soon-to-be father-in-law. You see, Richard Jr. was planning to get married the following weekend to Alman's stepdaughter. What makes this case just a smidge weirder is that it wasn't Richard's dad or even his fiance that reported him missing. It was Charles Alman. He filed the missing report within a couple of days after he had stopped, uh, after Junior had stopped behind Alman's truck. On December 14th, so almost a month later, 
Junior's gold 1968 Chevy pickup truck was found abandoned in Richmond, Virginia. Witnesses reported that the truck had been parked at that location for three or four weeks. The truck had been wiped clean. Then, a couple of months after Junior was last seen, his family received an anonymous letter in the mail. The letter was typed, and it basically said that Junior was fine, that he was working, and that he had made the decision to sever all ties with his family. Of course, Richard's family isn't buying it. They say he would never have done that. But that letter would be the last glimmer of any hope, at least for a while. 32 years later, in May of 2015, something pretty big happened. Charles Amon was charged with Richard's murder. What I didn't tell you was that a short time before Richard disappeared, Richard accused Almond of sexually abusing his soon-to-be wife. They had actually gotten into an argument about it. The other thing I didn't tell you was that Charles Almond only lived a few short miles from the last place Junior was last seen on Route 254. At the time when Almond was charged with Richard's murder uh, in 2015, he was 84 years old. Alman also had a criminal history that wasn't so much in the past. Several months before he was charged with Richard's murder, Alman was charged with attempted murder for allegedly trying to poison a woman with antifreeze-laced iced tea. He was never convicted of that charge, however, because the grand jury declined to indict him. Almond goes to trial in March of 2016 and does become quite interesting. Eleven witnesses testified that Almond had told them he had shot Richard, dismembered his body, and dissolved it in acid. Almond's own son and his stepdaughter, Richard's fiance, testified against him. The defense presented no witnesses. Their technique was to instead ask the judge to dismiss the case for lack of evidence and to call the prosecution's witnesses, all 11 of them, liars. The judge wasn't having it. Allman was instead found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Life in prison only meant about four, year, four more years because um, the... Charles Allman um, ended up dying in prison at the age of 89. Now, if you believe the witness's testimony about how Allman bragged about dissolving Richard's body in acid, then he may never be found. But if you believe that that isn't the case, then maybe Richard's family and loved ones will be able to give him a proper burial someday. If you think you know anything about where Richard William Miller Jr.'s remains may be, you can contact the Augusta County Sheriff's Office. The, this next case um, is familiar in some ways, but it is still very unique. This is case number 1926 DFVA in the Doe Network and case number MP1192 in NamUs. This is the disappearance of Marine Corps Captain Shirley Gibbs Russell. Shirley is an African-American female with black hair and brown eyes. 
She was born on September 22nd of 1957. She was 31 at the time of her disappearance, and she would be 62 now. She was a pretty tall lady, standing at 5'11 and weighing 130 pounds. Both of Shirley's ears are pierced, and Shirley may use her maiden name, Gibbs. Shirley disappeared from Quantico, Quantico, Virginia on March 4th of 1989. Now, the backstory for this case is more to do with what may have happened to Shirley than her actual disappearance. This story is also quite the ride. Uh, to give you the backstory, I have to take you back to August of 1985. At that time, Shirley was stationed in Paris Island, South Carolina. While she was there, she met uh, Captain Robert Peter Russell. He was stationed at Paris Island as well, and he too was in the Marine Corps. The thing is that Robert, at the time, was a married man. He had married his first wife in 1980, and they had two children together. Now, Robert's marriage at this point is pretty much over, and although he is still legally married, uh, Robert and Shirley begin spending time together, and they essentially begin having an affair. Now, Robert's divorce isn't final until early 1987. Then about three months after his divorce, Robert is transferred to a naval base in Gulfport, Mississippi. Shirley was still back at Paris Island, but they continued their relationship. Around this time, Robert had begun drinking pretty heavily. He also wasn't completely faithful to Shirley while, she was in, while he was in Gulfport because he was known to have been involved romantically with several other women during this time. Now, I don't know if Shirley was aware of this, and I have to think that she wasn't, because I don't think she would have married Robert in September of 1987 if she knew. Regardless, the marriage began pretty rocky, because along with other issues, the couple was still apart for the beginning of their relationship, because they were still stationed in two different states. When the couple did spend time together, it wasn't very happy times. Robert's drinking was getting worse, there was also allegations of abuse, and Robert was still having affairs with other women. Before Robert began drinking, his career was on a pretty good path. He was dedicated to his work, and he held the position of captain, but it looked like he was a good candidate for the promotion to major. Shirley was really on the same page as well. Um, she was dedicated and eventually received the, role, the rank of captain with really good odds that she would receive the promotion to major. Unfortunately, neither of the couple would see the promotion. Eventually, the couple does end up living together when Shirley is reassigned to Quantico, Virginia. They live together in married quarters on base. Now, I'm not quite sure of the chronology, but Robert is discharged from the Marine Corps. What I'm unclear about is if Robert moved to Quantico before or after his discharge in September of 1988. Shirley was transferred two months prior to this in July of 88. Robert was given an other than honorable discharge because of un unauthorized periods of absences uh, unauthorized use of government telephones, and fraudulent claims against the government. In any case, Robert and Shirley's marriage still isn't great. 
Uh, Shirley was dedicated to making it work, though, because during the course of their 18-month marriage, Shirley had seen marriage counselors at least eight times. This obviously didn't fix the problem, though, um, because by February of 1989, they decided to separate. Shirley ended up moving into bachelor's quarters on base, and Robert moved off base. Now, they had vacated the married housing, so it needed to be cleaned and painted for inspection, scheduled on Monday, March 6th of 1989. On Friday, March 3rd, Shirley, Shirley picked up the final version of the marital settlement agreement. On that day, she also put a down payment on a condo that she was planning to move into. Now, Shirley had made plans with Robert to meet the following morning at the married quarters to clean it up. She also planned to present that final settlement agreement to Robert at that time. Now, what happened that following day is not completely certain, but I'll tell you the series of events as it was laid out by Robert in early interviews uh, with investigators. He said... On the morning of March 4th, he met with Shirley at their apartment. He claimed they made love on the kitchen floor and cleaned. Robert said he had also given Shirley a pistol after they had split. He said the gun was for Shirley's protection um, because she had been receiving anonymous calls where the caller threatened them, uh, both, her, both he and Shirley, over their interracial marriage. He said that Shirley eventually left to walk to a store about five miles away to get some paint. So most people have a problem with Robert's story because while Shirley was physically fit, um, walking five miles to get paint didn't seem very smart. It was also a rainy, cold, 40-degree day, so walking five miles in the cold for paint seemed unnecessary when Shirley had other options. Now, we do know that Shirley was at the married quarters that day because a neighbor had seen Shirley outside at about noon on that day. Eventually, uh, law enforcement had enough evidence to charge Robert with Shirley's murder, even though they did not have a body. The prosecution contended that Robert shot Shirley to death with a 25 caliber pistol while they were in the storage shed next to their quarters. They claimed that Robert dismembered Shirley's body and then dumped her remains in a mine shaft in rural Pennsylvania. Robert maintained his innocence in the 1991 trial. The case the prosecution presented was largely circumstantial, though. There were no witnesses to the murder although they did have witnesses to Robert's odd behavior around the time of Shirley's disappearance. They had no blood in the storage shed, although they did believe that some blood had been cleaned up in the washroom of the house. That twenty-five caliber gun that Robert had purchased just days before Shirley's disappearance was also never found. What they did have was pretty damning, though. Uh, the prosecution produced a 26-step a 26-step recipe for murder that Robert had written prior to Shirley's disappearance. Robert's mother testified at trial that the list was part of a manuscript for a novel which had been thrown away. 
One key prosecution witness testified that she had an affair with Robert several months before Shirley's disappearance. She claimed that Robert told her that he wanted to murder his wife. Robert's argument at trial was that Shirley was still alive. He believed that Shirley left on her own accord because she was tired of military life. The only thing that supported this was that Shirley's passport and driver's license disappeared with her and have never been found. Although they haven't been used and neither has her credit cards, bank accounts, or social security number. Despite all of the purely circumstantial evidence, Robert was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This case was a very standout case as well because it was the very first federal murder trial in which the victim's body had not been recovered. So I'll tell you, honestly, just briefly reading over this case, I didn't think that Robert was going to be convicted of murder because of how circumstantial the case was. Now, the information that I'm giving you is just the quick run-through. When I actually did more digging, I found Robert's appeal on Justia. Uh, after I read through that, which pretty much outlined the trial, I understood why he was convicted and sentenced to life without. If you want to read through that because you aren't convinced, I suggest that you find it and do so. I just searched Robert Peter Russell and was able to find it. If you're not a reader, but a watcher, they did make a a made-for-television movie based on Shirley's case. It's called The Perfect Murder, and it was aired about eight years after Shirley's disappearance. So while it surely does seem like Shirley is no longer alive, it would be nice for her family to be able to give her a service and lay her to rest. If she is still alive, like Robert alleges, they would love to hear from her because they miss her, of course. Whatever the case may be, if you have any information about Shirley Gibbs Russell's whereabouts, you can contact the Naval Criminal Investigation Services. So this next case is extra sad, and unlike our last two cases, no one has been charged in this one. This is case number 107-DMVA in the Doe Network and case number MP-2053 in NamUs. This is a juvenile case, so the NCMEC number for this one is 737806. This is the disappearance of Jamal Abdul Farouk. Jamal is an African-American male with black hair and brown eyes. He was born on August 12th of 1982. He was seven at the time of his disappearance, and he would be 37 now. Jamal was only four foot five and 47 pounds when he went missing. Jamal has a scar on his right eyebrow and a mole on his temple above his left ear. He has a small gap, but he had a small gap between his uh, upper front teeth when he disappeared. He was last seen wearing a black Batman T-shirt, blue jeans, and gray and red fleece baseball jacket and white sneakers. It's April 16th of 1990 and it's spring break. The weather is nice and clear and it's finally starting to warm up. 
Jamal's stepmother dropped him and his eight-year-old brother, Basil, off at their mother's apartment in the 1700 block of Clarkson Road in Richmond, Virginia. Now, the boy's mother, Tambar Ellis, had worked the night shift at the nearby DuPont factory, so she was pretty tired. But when the boys got home, they asked their mother if they could go play outside. The boys did this often. Um, they had a group of friends around their age in the neighborhood that they liked to play with, and Tambar wasn't worried about them being outside without her because they always walked to school on their own every day. So when the boys asked, Tambar said, of course. Now, it's about 2.30 in the afternoon, and the boys were in the front yard playing. Tambar decided to take the opportunity to get some rest and take a nap. So she laid down for a short rest while the boys played outside. Tambar slept for about 30 minutes and then woke up. She walked outside to get the boys for dinner, but she didn't see them. She called for them, but she heard no response. She searched the apartment complex grounds, which contained about 600 apartments, and then she looked at uh, she looked for them at the playground only a block away, but still nothing. At this point, the panic in Tambar is starting to rise, but she remains calm and she keeps looking. Now, Tambar knew they weren't in anyone's house because the boys knew very well that their mother wouldn't have allowed it. She checked the convenience store at the front of the complex. They weren't there. The more she called out for them, the more Tambar began to realize the boys were not in hearing distance of her. Tambar continued to search for her boys and call their names for about 45 minutes. When the panic overtook her, she called the cops. Police took quick action. Search dogs, officers, and volunteers canvassed the neighborhoods. Police helicopters looked for the boys from above. Tambar, who was an Army Reserve at the time, also had fellow soldiers from her reserve unit volunteer to look for her sons. The search continued into the night and then the following day, then the following day. On the third day of the search, there was news. On that third day, Tambar and the boy's father, Everett Abdul Farouk, received the news that no parent hopes to hear. Basil's body had been found. Basil was found 10 miles from his home in a landfill in Chesterfield. A truck driver had noticed his body protruding from a torn plastic garbage bag and reported it to authorities. A clothed Basil was found gagged and bound with duct tape. He had been stabbed twice in the back and his skull was fractured. When the medical examiner looked at Basil, at Basil he determined that the stab wounds were what killed him and that the skull fracture had actually occurred post-mortem. After Basil was found in the landfill, searchers spent at least a day going through the rest of the trash in the dump. They were able to identify the truck that carried Basil to the dump, but that lead didn't really help. That truck serviced about 90 dumpsters. <clears throat> With Basil's death ruled a homicide and Jamal nowhere to be found, they also had no other clues to follow. As with most missing child cases, uh, investigators had to look at those closest to the boys. Some potential evidence was removed from the home of the boy's father. 
Eventually, though, it was determined that the property taken from the home was not connected to the case. Tambar and Everett were both questioned, but they were eventually cleared. Understanding the process, both parents maintained their cooperation with law enforcement. Now, this, this case takes place in 1990. <clears throat> During that time, there just wasn't the advances in DNA that we have now. So now the hope is that, that DNA will help investigators find out who killed Basil and who may have Jamal. But there may be something else. Back in 2009, so about 19 years after Basil and Jamal disappeared, their case is featured on America's Most Wanted. The episode featured an age progression photo of Jamal at age 26. They asked for any tips from the public, and it pays off. Police received two tips saying Jamal was alive and well, living in, living in Hinesville, Georgia. Now, in one of those calls, the tipster reported seeing a person in Walmart in Hinesville that looked like the age progression photo that they had seen on the show. So detectives went to the Walmart and reviewed the surveillance footage. The issue was that they had no idea where in the store this person was or the exact date and time he was seen. They also had no way of getting in contact with the tipster because it was an anonymous tip. So they reached a dead end with that clue, at least uh, until they can, if they can, find out who it was that they talked to or who it was that called in the tip. The detectives on the case feel like it's a, there's a pretty good possibility that Jamal is alive. Tambar is hopeful as well. Tambar has her own theory about why one of her sons was found and the other wasn't. She thinks that Basil died trying to protect Jamal. The boys equ were equally protective of each other, but Basil was that big brother and she thinks he died doing what a big brother does. The biggest thing in this case is that if Jamal is alive, he holds all the clues that could lead to who killed Basil. So, if you know anything about the murder of Basil Abdul Farouk or the disappearance of his brother Jamal Abdul Farouk, please contact the Richmond, Virginia Police Department. So this next case is just as sad as the last one, but I don't have nearly as much information on it. This is case number 2250DFVA in the Doe Network and case number MP5992 in NamUs. It is also a juvenile case, so the NCMEC number is 850707. This is the disappearance of, of Allison Kathleen Dalton. Allison is a Caucasian female with brown hair and blue eyes. She was born on May 17th of 1998 and was two months old at the time of her disappearance. She would be 22 now. She was 20 inches long and only 8 pounds. It's July 27th of 1998 and 19-year-old uh, Selena Jo Dalton is a single mother to two-month-old Allison. They were living together in a second-floor apartment in the 100 block of Charleston Street in uh, Strasburg, Virginia. At 2.25 that afternoon, one of Selena's co-workers stops by the apartment to check on her and the baby. What she finds when she walks into the apartment would forever change the life 
of a multitude of people. Inside the apartment, on the couch, she finds Selena. Selena is dead and covered in a multitude of stab wounds and cuts and covered in blood. The quick question comes to mind, where is Allison? A quick check of her crib reveals that she is not there. She's nowhere in the apartment and police are quickly contacted. What is realized pretty soon by law enforcement is that several of Allison's baby bottles are missing. So while investigators are processing Selena's murder scene, searchers are also looking for Allison. Unfortunately, the extensive searches produce no signs of baby Allison. The investigation into Selena's death is, a, is in full gear as well. The medical examiner's report include, included deep stab wounds to Selena's chest, which pierced her heart, lung, liver, and stomach. There are more cuts to her hands, which means she fought. The total number of stabs to the chest was five. The time of death was determined to be between 9.15 and 10.30 a.m. It is known that Selena and Allison were alive and at the apartment at 7.45 a.m. Investigators start talking to the neighbors as well. And while most reported hearing or seeing nothing, one neighbor had a different story. That neighbor said they heard a noise, looked out the window, and saw a male putting a baby into the passenger side of a truck. So while police have named no suspects or persons of interest in this case, I do find it necessary to tell you about Selena's on-again, off-again boyfriend and Allison's dad, Daniel Pompel. Now, as I mentioned, Daniel and Selena had a very unsteady relationship. He didn't live with Selena or Allison, but there were allegations of police being called to the apartment frequently because of domestic fights between the pair. At the time of Selena's death and Allison's disappearance, Selena was attempting to collect child support from Daniel. He was also scheduled to take a DNA test to confirm the paternity. Now, allegedly, the paternity hearing was scheduled for the day of Selena's murder. The thing was, though, According to some people, uh, Selena wanted to try and settle the child support issue civilly without involving the court system. Selena's loved ones claim that this was because she was afraid of Daniel and didn't want to upset him. So when police do actually talk to Daniel, he tells them that he was, he was at Selena's apartment, apartment on the day she died. He said he went to the apartment uh, around 9 a.m. and knocked on the door but no one answered, so he left. Investigators did search Daniel's home after Selena's murder, um, but they didn't find anything of interest, or at least they're not saying they found anything. Um, but they do say he has been cooperative with the investigation, so there's that. So Selena's family believes Daniel is responsible for Selena's murder and Allison's disappearance. Daniel continues to maintain his innocence and police have never named him or anyone else in, in the, as suspects in the, oh, I'm sorry. They haven't named Daniel or anyone else as suspects or persons of interest in this case. 
In 2000, though, uh, Selena's mother filed a wrongful death suit against Daniel seeking $1.5 million in damages. The lawsuit was eventually dismissed, though, due to lack of evidence. Crime Watch Daily did cover this case, but I don't know uh, what the air date was or what episode it is. To this day, 21 years later, Allison is still missing and Selena's murder remains unsolved. So, if you know anything about the murder of Selena Jo Dalton or the disappearance or whereabouts of her daughter Allison Kathleen Dalton, please contact the Virginia State Police. So, our final case for this week is a double disappearance. This one is not in chronological order with the rest because I wanted to save it for last. I also contemplated on if I should tell you about it in its own bonus episode, but I think I'll be able to do it pretty quickly here. I honestly uh, could do a bonus episode for this case, but it's one of those things where I have a lot of information for a regular episode, uh, but not quite enough for a bonus episode. Um, You'll understand what I mean when I get into it. Uh, So this is the disappearance of Richard Keith Call and Cassandra Lee Haley. Ladies first here. So Cassandra is case number 248DFVA in the Doe Network and case number MP943 in NamUs. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. She was born on May 16th of 1969 and was 18 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 51 now. She was five foot seven and 135 pounds. Cassandra's left ear is pierced three times and her right ear is pierced twice. She was last seen wearing a long sleeve, rust colored Jersey turtleneck with a white uh, blouse over it. She also had stonewashed jeans and a 1987 Tab High school uh, class ring. Cassandra goes by multiple nicknames, including Sandra, Sandy, Missy, and Casey. Or Cassie, I'm sorry. Uh, Richard is case number 2349DMVA in the Doe Network and case number MP940 in NamUs. He is a Caucasian male with light brown hair and blue eyes. He was born on March 8th of 1968 and was 20 at the time of his disappearance. He would be 52 now. He stood at 6 foot and 150 pounds. He was last seen wearing a gray and brown cardigan sweater, a white polo shirt, two-tone brown dress slacks, and leather shoes. Richard goes by his, last, or his middle name, Keith. On April 9th of 1988, Richard picked up Cassandra at her Crafton, Virginia home. They had planned to spend the evening together. Richard was escorting Cassandra around in his red 1982 Toyota Celica. It was Keith and Cassie's first date. Um, It was Keith's first date since he had broken up with his girlfriend of nearly four years. Cassie and Keith were last seen at a party in Newport News, Virginia at about 1.30 a.m., on April 10th. Neither of them have been seen again. Keith's vehicle was discovered abandoned at the York River Overlook on Colonial Parkway in Yorktown, Virginia at 7 a.m. on April 10th, but 
It was not reported to authorities until 9 a.m. Nothing appeared to have been disturbed. The keys were on the driver's seat and a watch and eyeglasses were on the dashboard. Nearly all of the clothes Keith was wearing, including his underwear, was found in the back seat of the car, as were some of Cassie's clothes and her underwear. Her purse and Keith's wallet were missing. The wallet contained at least $20 in cash. There was no trace of Keith or Cassie at the overlook. Authorities initially believed that they had gone swimming and drowned, but an extensive search of the river turned up no signs of them. Not to mention, the water temperature uh, was in the 40s the, the night of the disappearances, and Cassie was afraid of the water. Investigators quickly changed their suspicions to foul play. Now, this is why I could have done a bonus episode. So, the bodies of three other young couples, all of them college students, were found in areas located off the Colonial Parkway from 1986 through 1989. In all cases, their cars were found abandoned with most of their possessions intact inside. The vehicle, uh, uh, I'm sorry, they were intact inside of the vehicle. Keith and Cassie are the only two bodies that have never been recovered. They were the third of the four couples that are believed to be the victims of an unidentified serial killer. The Colonial Parkway extends for 23 miles and runs through Yorktown, Williamsburg, and Jamestown in Virginia. Authorities have long suspected that a serial killer stalked and killed in that region in the mid to late 1980s. They believe the perpetrator may have impersonated a law enforcement officer in order to approach the victims. So, like the other victims, Keith and Cassie were college students at the time of their disappearance, and they both attended Christopher Newport College, which is now called Christopher Newport University. So Keith and Cassie have never been located, and maybe finding them holds the key that unlocks the answers to the Colonial Parkway serial killer. If you know anything about the disappearance of Richard Keith Call and Cassandra Lee Haley, you can contact the Virginia State Police or the FBI. Now, I do have a scene again for you this week, but before I get into that, I need to tell you about the search for a missing soldier that is occurring in real time. This story has been in the news a lot recently, but if you haven't heard it, I want to make you aware. This is in Fort Hood, Texas, so all of my Texas listeners, this one is coming straight for you. We're talking about missing 20-year-old U.S. Army Private First Class, Vanessa Guillon. Vanessa is stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, and she was last seen on April 22nd of 2020 at about 1 p.m. She was in the parking lot of her Regimental Engineering Squadron headquarters when she was last seen. Vanessa is of Hispanic descent. She is 5'2 and 126 pounds with light, uh, I'm sorry, with black hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a black shirt, light purple, light purple leggings, and black Nike brand tennis shoes. Vanessa has a tattoo of a cross with a flower on her left arm, another flower tattoo on her left arm, and a tattoo of a mountain with a circle on her upper left shoulder. She also has a small mole between her lower mouth and her chin. So I was curious about why Vanessa's disappearance was getting so much attention because sadly, most of the cases I cover don't even touch the attention that this case is getting. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. 
I, I wish all missing persons cases would be in full view like Vanessa's case. I realize though that Vanessa's uh, Vanessa really has people rallying for her. She is Hispanic, so the Hispanic community has come out to support this case fully. She also has some pretty well-known people putting her name in the public, including Texas Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia, rapper Baby Bash, and actress Selma Hayek. Vanessa's family has put up a website. Uh, you can find that at findvanessagullen.com. Uh, Guillaume is spelt G-U-I-L-L-E-N. Um, from that website, you can donate, uh, read about Vanessa, and check for the latest updates in her case. Now, what I did find on that site, which is kind of what I was looking for, was some backstory. And you can pretty much find it on, on that website's homepage under Vanessa's story if you want to read it for yourself. But I'm going to pretty much tell you what it says. Apparently, about three weeks before Vanessa disappeared, she was speaking to her mom when her mom asked uh, Vanessa why she seemed different. Now, a mother knows their child, and Vanessa's mom noticed that Vanessa had become withdrawn and she wasn't sleeping normally. So eventually, Vanessa told her mom that she was being sexually harassed by one of her sergeants. Now, Vanessa wouldn't tell her mother the name of this person because she didn't want to get in trouble. Her mother offered to report it for her, but Vanessa said she had heard about other female soldiers reporting sexual harassment, and the U.S. Army didn't believe them. Now, apparently, this sergeant would follow Vanessa whenever she ran or exercised, and of course, this made Vanessa uncomfortable. Vanessa's mom is upset, obviously, and was probably willing to literally take on an army to put a stop to this, but... Vanessa said no and that she would take care of it herself. Before her disappearance, Vanessa still hadn't revealed the name of that sergeant to her mother. And as far as I guess the general public is aware, Vanessa didn't make any reports about the harassment. Now, this could have absolutely nothing to do with Vanessa's disappearance. But in my brain, the clothing that Vanessa was wearing when she disappeared would indicate that she was about to exercise or she had just finished exercising. Publicly, police haven't released the name of any possible suspects or persons of interest, um, so it is really uh, unknown if they have any. I would hope that they do. Now, there is a reward for information, information leading to the whereabouts of Vanessa. Within the last week, that reward has doubled from $25,000 to $50,000. You can submit an anonymous tip through the website or you can contact Army CID Special Agents at 254-495-7767 or the Military Police Desk at 254-287-4001. Okay, now as I promised, I will tell you a scene again. 14-year-old Isabella Shea Hicks disappeared from her home in Bum Pass, Virginia at about 1 a.m. on October 21st of 2019. Isabel's parents called police after Isabel's sister told her parents that Isabel was not in their shared bedroom where she had last seen her. Police issued an Amber Alert and authorities announced that they are looking for a silver-blue 2003 Toyota Matrix with a Virginia license plate. 
on Wednesday, October 30th, over a week after Isabel's disappearance, a citizen spots the Toyota Matrix matching the description and calls police. Police locate the vehicle and get behind it. They activate their lights and sirens to perform a traffic stop, and wouldn't you know it, the vehicle refused to pull over. The police were led on a pursuit before the driver finally decided to stop. The driver, 33-year-old Bruce William Lynch, was arrested without further incident. 14-year-old Isabel is found inside the vehicle, unharmed. Some reports say that Bruce Lynch is the ex-boyfriend of Isabel's mother. Initially, Lynch was charged with felony abduction and a bond was denied. But then came eight more charges that Lynch would have to answer to. That included four counts of indecent liberties with a child and four counts of carnal knowledge without force. As far as I can tell, there is no resolve to this case yet. The last thing I read was from February of this year that stated Lynch's arraignment had been rescheduled for a third time because he had a new attorney that needed more time. So keep your ears open to see how this story plays out. Well, that wraps up this episode. So many good cases coming out of Virginia. And honestly, I was surprised uh, about the amount of information I was able to get on these cases. Now, I know this episode was a little longer than most. Honestly, though, I never really plan the length of these episodes. They just kind of end up being what they are. If it takes me a long time or a short time to tell you what I need you to know uh, the, or what is important in my opinion, then, you know, so be it. Any amount of time with these people's name coming out of my mouth is better than no time. With that being said, please take the time to speak these people's names from your mouth as well. If you're not a talker, though, that's fine. Some people aren't. You could instead, or you could also, share this podcast or this episode on social media. And if you like this podcast, go ahead, like, follow, favorite, rate, and or review on whatever platform you listen on, if any of those are an option. Stitcher and Apple Podcast listeners, you can do me the hugest favor and give this podcast those five stars. I know doing that requires you to leave a review, but you can say whatever you'd like there. You can say that you're being made to do this, and that's okay because it's the stars that make the biggest impact on how this podcast climbs the charts. And if you haven't heard me explain it before, the higher in the ranking this podcast gets, the more listeners I get. And that's really good for these missing people. If you haven't already done so, you can find the podcast uh, Facebook page at facebook.com backslash NTBSA podcast. If you like and follow the page, you can see when new episodes are up. And you can also see the pictures of the people I cover in each episode. From there, you can also message me with case suggestions. But if you don't do Facebook, but you still have a case suggestion, you can email me at nevertoBeseenAgainPodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank everyone for their continued support and thank everyone who, who has rated the podcast thus far. Thank you for continuing to listen every week. I do this for the missing people most importantly, but I also do this for you because I know that the odds are that at least a portion 
of you have been affected by the disappearance or loss of a loved one in a way that leaves more questions than answers. With that being said, I hope that you continue to listen and come back next, not just next week, but every week to hear me tell you more about those never to be seen again.